0: The will, the work, and the witness, part two here, uh, started last week. First six verses of Ephesians, uh, we're going to look at that. and Just to catch the context, we'll go through those first six verses briefly again as we get started here, uh, but the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I love the way this breaks down. I mentioned before, you don't have to outline this. It outlines itself. And we're talking about uh, what's called the doxology. It's a form of praise. And uh, this is the longest sentence in the Bible in the original language. Verses 3 through 14 are one sentence. It's one statement. It's broken up in English because it's kind of hard to make Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's hard to make it flow. Uh, in English, but uh, the essence of what is there in the original manuscripts is definitely captured and that's fine with us. So in verses one through six, again, for context, looking at the will of God, what we looked at last week, we see Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. We looked at that uh, to the saints there, the holy ones, the set apart ones, not uh these special people, you and I are saints, uh, and, and who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Remember when the church was planted and then it, when Paul came back on his second missionary journey, the thing just exploded. Uh, they had a bunch of guys in there that were trying to uh, sort of take things into their own hands and, and do miracles without having uh, even a relationship with Christ, let alone the anointing of the Holy Spirit on them. And the the demon-possessed guy leapt on them and tore their clothes off and injured them. They went running from the house screaming. <laughs> it's just a great scene. Um, it looks like something out of a Hollywood movie, and yet it really happened. And the power that Christ has over all of that, the power of the Holy Spirit in right uh and right thinking in, in the way that God let it happen. So impressed these very spiritistic people. They were very spiritistic. They were very much into dark arts and magic and sorcery, sorcery, the, the Greek word for sorcery in the Bible. I remember one time I had a guy tell me, he said, I'm like, I don't see where it's smoking weed is it like the Bible talks about. You can't do that. And I thought, Uh, okay, you're trying to make an excuse because, and I essentially said, look, when it talks about the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter five, and, and sorcery is one of them, the Greek word for that is pharmakeia. It's where we get pharmaceuticals. They were into big time drug abuse in the first century. And that's how they did it. They called it sorcery we call it being, you know, being drug abuse or whatever. So anyway, these guys were into that. And so the church exploded at that point. These people went, wow, the power that that God that Paul is talking about has is way bigger than ours. They had the whole book burning, you know, where they burned all of their dark art, magical books and all that, that. And, and it was just a great scene and a great time in the church's history. Well, Paul moves on from there, goes to Rome and then writes back to them. And so He's talking about the saints and the faithful, the people that were in the surrounding region and all in Christ. These letters would have been circulated. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at the Siamese twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. It doesn't ever say peace and grace because you can't have the peace of God without first having an encounter with the grace of God, his unmerited favor towards man through the accomplishment, the work of Christ. So as we're looking at the will of the Father here, he says, blessed in verse three, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I look on television and I see some of the junk that the charlatans out there are peddling and they're trying to promise all of this material blessing. Give me spiritual blessings any day of the week. I want to grow in my relationship with Jesus. I want to understand. I want to have an encounter with him. Not expect him to be some cosmic genie. If I rub the lamp, then he's going to put money in my wallet. That so cheapens the gospel. It so insults the spirit of grace. So, He's talking about spiritual blessings here in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse four, just as he chose us in him, we talked about predestination before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. So realizing that I'm chosen is not saying now I have a license to go live like I want. He says, no, when you're chosen, with, with, with becoming his child comes with, Uh, a life of being set apart, of living set apart, not how much can I, how close to the edge can I live? Because I'll guarantee you, if that's your attitude, that's your mindset, you try to live close to the edge, you're going to slip over. It's just our nature. So he's saying that we have this new nature, we have this new, this, this, Dominant nature, not the nature of flesh any longer as Christians, but the nature of spirit who wants to control our lives. And as that takes place and takes hold in our lives, we grow in grace and knowledge. All of this stuff fits together. So it says that he's, in verse 5, predestined us to adoption as sons. That uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about predestining because it's in this morning's uh, passage as well. By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure, again, of his will. We're talking about the will of the Father. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. He says, to the praise of his glory. Uh, each one of these three sections ends with that statement, this is the first. So as he planted this church on his second journey, he would have many friends, many memories. Uh, this is years later, but he's got a connection with these people and he loves them. And so uh, if you remember in Acts chapter 20, uh, he, he talks about when I leave, there will be trouble that comes from inside the church And there will be trouble that comes from outside the church. And he was exhorting the Ephesian elders at that time to be on guard. That, that because they're taking ground in the kingdom, it's essentially like you've got a, you've got a bullseye painted on you. As a believer, you, you're no threat to Satan when you're out there banging along in the world doing your thing. But when you start to take ground in the kingdom and as you embrace Christ and as he gets hold of your life and the Holy Spirit begins to, to motivate you, you're a threat to the powers of darkness because he comes to lie, steal, and destroy. And so it's important that we understand that he made us accepted in the beloved. What does he mean by that? It's, it's God's will worked out, carried out by the work of Christ through which we are accepted in the beloved. Not of our own stuff. We'll look look at that in chapter two when we talk about works and all. But uh, here he is. He's reminding them that God has, is the one that does the blessing. He's the one that's blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he begins this letter by showing that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Very important. We understand that. Uh, if you look. When you talk about predestination, if you look at the passages that deal with predestination, almost without fail, they're addressing Christians, people who are already in. If you look at the passages that talk about free will, most often it's talking about people who are outside of Christ. Because the exhortation is, come in. Once you come in, you realize, I'm predestined. It, it, think about—think of an arch. Alright, so there you, you look, you see this big archway, and across the top of this archway, it says, whosoever will come. I love that. Revelation twenty two seventeen. we have that on the wall here before, uh, service, uh, where this is in the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who thirsts come, let, who, and come and drink of the water of life freely without cost. And so, who, whosoever will come, that's not only the elect, that is God's will that all would come to repentance. And so you look at this arch, it says, whosoever will come. You walk through it, you turn around and you look at the backside of it and it says predestined from the foundations of the earth. So towards believers, yes, the view is towards seeing that you are secure in him because what is my understanding that I'm predestined, that God knows that my life is hidden in him that I was predestined from the foundations of the world to belong to him, it brings great security as a believer that we can bank on that. For the person that's outside of the covenant, the person that's outside looking in, the exhortation is always, come, give your life to Christ. Let the weight of your life down on him. And in doing so, discover that you're predestined. Talked about that last week, uh, and I'm not going to go any further on that. But uh, as we're looking at this, we're looking at the sovereignty of God. That, because we dwell in time. We, uh, time is a construct. I, I, I sometimes laugh when I hear people talk about to the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And they try to make that a formula. It's not a formula. It's saying God doesn't measure time like we do on this little chunk of rock spinning around this star in the backwaters of the Milky Way. It's, it's ludicrous to think that we, that it's all about us. He's saying God is outside of time. And, and yet he dwells in eternity. We dwell in time. And so we've talked about that, guys. When we, as finite beings, start talking about infinite things and we bump up against that, we have to come to a place or we exercise faith, because you will not get there from here in trying to figure it out. Uh, mystery is the, the result. We're going to talk about mystery a little bit here as we go along. So the point is, with the whole predestiny thing, is that God chose us in Christ before the world was. He determined in advance those who he would adopt to be part of his family. And if you're part of his family this morning, understand and realize and rejoice in the fact that you're predestined to be so. A little bit of a mystery there. But the emphasis here is that he he says that we're saved through the riches of God's grace. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're loved. And there's something in this passage too. I don't want to forget. I don't want to leave it out. This is not just theological truth. Yes, I love the nuts and bolts, all right? I, I, I love to take it apart, put it together, look at it from this point of view, look at it from that point of view, all of that. But what is being expressed here is that God loves us, that he pursues us, that he wants a relationship with us. There is emotion in this coming from God, that he does that for his pleasure that he pursues us for his pleasure. Don't let that get lost. If you're a child of God this morning, understand that his love is poured out. Oh, but I blew it this week. I did this or I, I said that. It doesn't change the fact that his love is poured out, it's by grace. It's by Him heaping, lavishing grace on us. We'll talk about that. In this, in this passage, He talks about that God loves us so much that He, He lavishes grace on us. Never ending supply. As we looked at this uh, in verse six again, he says, "To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved." He's summing up the will of the Father as he as he has been going through here. Uh, literally, the Father has made us accepted in His beloved Son. How? By His grace. So, as we look now at the work of the Son in verse seven, we see in Him and in, in Jesus Christ. Because when he says accepted in the beloved the beloved is Jesus in verse 6 and so now he's shifting gears Paul is shifting gears from the will of the father unto the work of the son in him in Jesus Christ we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace simply stated there is no salvation there is no such thing as a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ period end of story you can't you can't make something try to fit. People do that all the time. But by his spirit, through his word, by the finished work of Christ alone, we have a relationship with him. There's one way. Uh, the, re- the word redemption here, when he talks about uh that we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption is a rich word in the Greek. It's a wonderful word. It's apolitrosis. Uh, You don't have to remember that. But what it means is to deliver by paying a price, or it means literally paying a ransom. It's the act of releasing or setting free with the implied analogy of the process of freeing a slave. The people in the first century would have totally understood this. All right, right? in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says in verse 28, he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. The Greek word there is lutron. And so when we look at apolitrosis, it's, 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 lutron is a ransom. Apolitrosis is the act of paying the ransom. Does that make sense? So what he's saying here is that the, through the act of Jesus paying the ransom for us, that's how he purchased us. That's how he redeemed us. So reminder, it's a reminder that all people are held in bondage and enslaved to sin because if you're not enslaved to sin, you don't need to have the ransom paid. But remember when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, there's uh, theoretically two ways to get to God. You can be perfect in every conceivable way, or you can come to Jesus. He says, you must be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. What he's saying there, he's not saying that now you have to work towards perfection in order to have a relationship with Christ. What he's saying is, theoretically, there's two ways to get to God, perfection or Christ. And his perfection, his righteousness being placed, your life being dipped in his righteousness. And that's the point. Sin separates us, makes it impossible outside of the work of the Son for us to come into and to have to enjoy a relationship with God, to be part of His family. It's not possible in any other way. In verse 7, He also says, in Him, note, this is, this term, in Him, is repeated over and over through this passage. It's very important that, to realize that He's stressing this. The importance of being in Him, and He's gonna be teaching us how we can be in Him. Because He says, in Him we have redemption, in His blood, once for all. So, when He talks about that, now remember, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. He, His, His ministry was to the Gentiles, but He had a great love for the Jews. Uh, and, and He, His heart for the Jews was never lost on the, uh, through the fact that his ministry primarily was to non-Jews. That's what a Gentile is. So he always maintained a heart towards his countrymen. We talked about that. And then as he would go in and teach in the synagogues and all of that, remember it says that the Jews rejected him by and large. There were a lot of people that came to Christ through the gospel that were Jewish, but as they would reject him, then he took the gospel to the Gentiles. So, with that in mind, when he talks about the blood of Christ, remember in Hebrews, we talked about the sacrificial system, that there had to be a life paid for sin to be atoned for. So as we look at that, that it's always through the blood. The blood in the scripture, it signifies a life poured out. It also signifies the yielding up of a life on behalf of another. That's what vicarious atonement means one standing in the place of another. And and so as we look at this, and as we look at the prophetic word going all the way back, it was prophesied, it was pointed to, it was alluded to, there are shadows and types all through the Old Testament, talking about the blood. It all pointed to a future fulfillment in Christ, that through his blood, we would be redeemed that he would be the one that paid the purchase price he would be the one that paid the ransom all right so when he's talking about that when when he says in uh, in verse 7 he says in him we have redemption through his blood that's what he's talking about so as we look at that when we you know as we look at the yielding up of a life uh, Part of uh, one of the we had somebody over to one of our our students from George Fox uh, visiting us on Friday night had dinner and stuff and we were talking and, and I was talking about uh, the prophetic word and how beautifully God's word fits together. We were talking about Isaiah fifty three, one of the passages that God used to lead me to Christ. I remember reading that as a Mormon sitting in a in a camper on on a trip. And God just blowing my mind because I read a footnote on that. I read Isaiah 53 and then it said, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And I thought, how could that be? This has to be true. And so looking at that, in Isaiah 53, verse 6, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. I mean, I'm looking at this, sitting in that camper, and, and thinking, this is exactly what I just read, because I had read the Gospel of Matthew on the same camping trip, and I'm thinking, "How how does that fit? I mean, how I don't know. I don't understand other than this is supernatural in its origin that this has to be God's word uh, and that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, the yielding up of the life of his life on behalf of others. I was seeing that then. That's what Paul is talking about here to the Ephesian church now, 2,000 years ago, and that is still the way that it is today. So as we look at this, there's great relevance to you and I. There's only one way, and it was through the blood of Christ, through his yielding his life up in your place, in my place. Peter understood this as well. In First Peter one eighteen and 19, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus, the Lamb of God, uh, John the Baptist. Again, he understood this. The first thing he said when John the ba- or when Jesus showed up on the scene there at the Jordan River, he looked, he saw Jesus, and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world." Knowing that his life would be standing in our place, bearing our sin, that we could come into relationship with God. So as Paul is unpacking this for the Ephesian people here, we look at it, we have the advantage of going to other places in God's word, seeing that God's word truly does validate itself. As we study, as we're diligent to show that ourselves approved and and rightly dividing the word of truth, as Paul tells Timothy, that we see that there's great linkage in these things. There's great comfort that comes from understanding that God, he doesn't need me to prove his word true that he proves his word true just through these different things that we look at. Again, sitting in that camper, gosh, going on 40 years ago now, and and, and reading my Bible and, and having the Lord open my understanding by the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that as we go. So verse seven, he talks about the forgiveness of sins. Forgive, the word here, it means to send away or to put away. Again, it reminds me of, of the Old Testament, the scapegoat. If you've read Leviticus lately, I mean, Wonderful book. You could probably spend all your devotions on that. But in Leviticus 16, excuse me, in Leviticus 16, it's, it, it, Moses is writing about the Day of Atonement for Israel. The one day a year where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, go behind the veil, and only the high priest once a year could go there into the very presence of God over the the seat, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and sprinkle the blood. In that whole thing on that day, they had two goats. All right? One goat, they would actually sacrifice and take his blood inside behind the veil. And so that was the sin offering. The second goat was called the scapegoat. That's where we get the term, scapegoat. Oh, okay, he's taking the brunt of it for the other guy or whatever. But the scapegoat, what would happen is the high priest would lay his hands on the head of this goat. And he would pray the sins of the people into this goat. And then another priest would take the the scapegoat out into the wilderness and set it free. And, and that goat would bear the sins of the people away. So we see that Jesus fulfills both halves of that. That yes, it was His blood on that cross that atoned for our sins. And yes, He bore our sins away. You couldn't have one goat live and one goat die. You could, I mean, in the Old Testament, but it only gave a partial covering. It pointed to a future fulfillment that Jesus would fulfill both sides. And so as we look at him being the Lamb of God, we look at the forgiveness to bear away, to be forgiven, is to have our sins borne away. They were borne away by Jesus on the cross, fulfilling, again, both sides of the prophetic nature, the type, the illustration, the shadow in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. The moment I give my life to Christ, the point here is that Jesus sees me clothed, or that God sees me clothed in his righteousness. That's the point. Past, present, future sins, all washed, all borne away by the blood of Christ. Psalm 103, verse 12, uh, David writes, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. I love that. It's one of my favorite Psalms because it's, it's the assurance that our sin is gone. Uh, you know, if, if you folks, if you look at the basis of God's judgment, thoughts, words, and deeds, things you think, things you say, things you do, how far do you get before you violate that? Do you realize how crucial grace is? And he says, Jesus says, No, he's our advocate before they, he says, Father, no. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. Put that on my account. That's fabulous, fabulous truth. In Jeremiah 31, he says, I'll remember your sins no more. It's not that God forgets. We looked at that because that's quoted in the book of Hebrews, is that he chooses not to remember. There's a difference. God can't forget, he's God. But when he says, I'll remember your sins no more, he's saying, I am choosing to not remember, to to not even have those come into my mind through the work of my son. Again, this is about the work of the son. All of this was done according to the riches of God's grace. Verse eight, he, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. In context of verse seven, according to the riches of his grace, he's telling us that God did everything, and he makes his grace abound. The word we get the word abundance from that, right? It's also rendered the word abound here is is rendered lavished in most modern translations. That it's as though he says, here, here's some grace, here's some more here's some more. Oh, oh, more. In other words, he just pushes his grace to us in never-ending supply, inexhaustible grace. We cannot out the grace of God. And, and, and as such, we are simply saying, what he's simply saying here to these people is, you've got to understand that it's by grace. and And, and it's not just a little bit of grace. It's not just enough to cover. It's enough to not only cover, but enough to eliminate your sin in the mind of God, in the heart of God. And then he keeps pushing you into your account. You cannot spend grace to the point where it's exhausted. It's not possible. You have an abundance. You've been lavished with grace. That's what he's saying. So literally saying God lavished the riches of his grace on us with all wisdom and understanding when he redeemed us and forgave us through Christ's shed blood. And that's his point. When he talks about wisdom and understanding, it's the divine plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. Again, he's talking about God being eternal, God being uh, outside of time. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is self-existent. And you gotta understand that that's the God that we know, that we love, that we serve. He is self-existent. That's the theological term, and it's a truth to hang on to. He has no beginning. I remember reading physics about, you know, the Big Bang and all that other stuff, and every time I would read what these guys would postulate, I would think nobody's going to the question of what happened just before that. Well, what about before that? Because there are no real answers out there aside from this. When you think about it in eternal terms, from the garden forward, we see in the garden that paradise was lost. Adam and Eve sinned. We were talking the other night, they didn't just drop dead. When he said, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day you you will surely die. They didn't fall over dead when they ate. Remember? They were banished from the garden. The cherubim were set to guard over the entrance. They couldn't go back. And they went on to have children. And that turned into a real mess with Cain and Abel and all of that. What he was talking about is spiritual death. And so out of that, Romans has a beautiful picture. Paul paints a beautiful thing in there. It's called the Doctrine of Federal Headship. You don't have to remember that. What he's talking about is the head of the human race, Adam, Paradise was lost. Christ, the second Adam, paradise is regained. And so all of us who are in him get that. Uh, It's it's just an awesome illustration there. Verse nine, I'm going to have to pick it up because we've got a lot to cover here. All right, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Look at how many times it's referring to, it says his will, his good pleasure, he purposed in himself. Who's doing the work here? It's not man. It's not us. It's him. Your job is by faith to appropriate this truth. That's it. He does the work. It's the work of the son. The emphasis here, again, it's on the sovereignty of God. Uh, sort of my, uh, the way I like to, to share the sovereignty of God is, is in simply stating, it's his ball. It's his ball game. He makes the rules, and you choose whether to play or not. That's the sovereignty of God. He is the one that's initiating, and we simply are the respondents. We don't supply. We don't add to this. We'll look in chapter two, where it's not by anything that we do. It's by responding to his grace. And as we do, our lives are enriched. As we do, We are further conformed to the image of his son. It can look on the outside like, oh, those Christians, they're just a bunch of people that just keep a bunch of rules. That's silliness. No, the response of my life to his grace is I want to live a life that's pleasing in his sight. I want to live a life that counts. I want to live a life that's informed by him, that he uses me and that he, he gives me the ability to obey. It's not you know, like a hamster on a wheel, like, okay, I'm just running, running, running because, you know, I've got to make sure that you're happy with me. Oh, that's just, you know, no, forget that. He says, rest in my grace. Rest in the fact that I have redeemed you. I have purchased you. I have paid the ransom. And as you rest in that, I will work in your life through the power of my Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that maybe um, as we go along here. But what he's saying is, is, lost my place here, that it's all of God, that it was pleasing to God to exercise and to implement this plan and to deliver us and forgive us. That's when it says he's having made known to us the mystery of his will, uh, in verse nine here. It's not a mystery that's not knowable. When he talks about the mystery of his will it's it, it literally it means something hidden which is ma- now made known the mystery of his will was hidden in ages past people it, it, let me explain this to understand god's wisdom in a mystery is only accessed through faith by the holy spirit that we understand. When you're talking to somebody and their eyes glaze over and their face goes blank and they're not a believer, it's because the things that you're saying to them are mysterious to them. The Bible says they're foolishness to the natural man. They're spiritually discerned. And so when it talks about having made known to us, he's talking to believers here, the mystery of his will I think about in in Matthew 13, Luke chapter 8, in in Mark chapter 4, I'm going to read from Mark here. Jesus gives what we call the parable of the sower. And I like to call it the parable of the soils because he's not really talking about the sower as much as he is the human heart. And the human heart is what's represented by the soils. He, He talks about... There's some seed that the, the sower goes out to sow and the sower is the son of man and he goes out to sow and he sows it on hard ground and the birds of the air come and take it. He sows it on rocky ground and it doesn't get any firm root. He, he sows it on weedy ground where the weeds grow up and they choke it. And then he talks about fertile soil. It's talking about the human heart. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing that, but what happened after that was significant and it deals with what we're talking about this morning. In in Mark chapter four, verse nine, it says, and Jesus said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When I'm praying that on Sunday morning, I'm not making it up. That is part of what we want God to do to inform our thinking. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may not, that they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. It's a mystery. To you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To the rest, it's na 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 na. It doesn't make sense. And so, When I'm sharing with somebody, when I'm sharing Christ with somebody, I'm praying, Lord, open their heart. Open their understanding. Give them ears to hear. Because if if that doesn't happen, this is just going to be words. This is going to be noise. And so it's really important as we share our faith, as we put it out there, that we're praying that God does the work. I remember when I was doing jail ministry, we would go in with two-man teams. We'd go into this jail, and, and the guards would lead all these inmates in, like 60, 70 of them. They'd lock the door behind and We didn't have any guards in there. When I first started doing it, I was like, this is kind of strange. And they'd come back in an hour, and I'm thinking, I hope they come back in an hour and find us, you know, alive. But they would... One of us would always pray, and the when, and we would take turns. We would go back, we would exchange every week. One of us would pray, God, open their hearts. Lord, work in them. Lord, reveal yourself to them. Give them understanding. Let the gospel go in. Let these seeds go down. Let them find fertile soil. Otherwise, it's a parable. What we see in the parables is they reveal truth to those that believe, to those that are coming to faith, And they conceal truth from those who don't. Very interesting spiritual dynamic there. So when Paul is talking about the mystery of his will, what he's talking about is not a mystery that's not knowable, but it's a mystery that's only accessed by faith. And as we access his word, as we, by the Holy Spirit, understand. If you're here this morning, you understand what I'm talking about. That's not because you're all that smart. I'm not saying you're not but it's because he is giving you understanding. It's not intellect, it's revelation. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That's why the simplest of us can understand the things of God. People that have a high education you know, and, and all of that, they, they can equally understand the things of God because it's by revelation. It's by his spirit through his word. He's no respecter of persons. Yeah, he has some people that they just think, and I love theologians, I love reading these guys that have brilliant minds and all of that. I'm not putting that down. But I'm saying that that person stands equally before God, and it has equal access to the person who has the simplest understanding. And that's part of how God set it up. In context, the mystery revealed is God's plan, that God's will is to save. Uh, You know, it's not clearly, there are shadows, as I mentioned, in the Old Testament. It's not clearly revealed in the Old Testament how he would do it. They they looked for Messiah, and they knew that he would be the one that would save Israel. And they you see all these shadows and all these types, all these things that point to future fulfillment. But his own men, remember, Jesus' own men, they were looking for Messiah up until he went to the cross. They they missed it in a lot of ways. Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to these guys and and he's just, it says that he, they're, he's opening their minds to understand the scripture because again, they're spiritually discerned. He's revealing himself to them to where that night at dinner, he reveals himself openly to them and then disappears and What is their response? Didn't our hearts burn within us as He spoke? I love that. I love that dynamic because as I access God's Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, my heart burns, man. I'll tell you, I love His Word. And I pray you do too, that you hold high the Word of God. Because that's how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us, through His Spirit. It's by His Spirit, through His Word. It's not by new revelation. Don't let anybody con you on that. There's a lot of bad doctrine out there. We have God's Word. Yes, He reveals Himself to us through it. So, uh, the Gentiles weren't even looking. The Jews were looking, but they missed Him because they didn't, again, they didn't, they didn't trust what He was saying. The Gentiles weren't even looking, but the fact is, is that Jesus died for both. We'll look at that in chapter two when we see that the dividing wall between Jew and Greek is taken down, it's taken out of the way. And that's talking about a wall in the temple. We'll talk about it's called the Soreg. We'll talk about that. It's a fascinating part of the study there, uh, because Paul is talking in Jewish terms to a bunch of Gentiles in the Gentile church. But he uses the Soreg as an example of how it, it, it's, it's equality now. It's not Jew and Greek. It's not even male and female. It's not slave or free. it's Christ. It's a new creation. Uh, chapter, or verse 9, again, just to catch the context for verse 10, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. We see that term in him again. Looking at, when he talks about, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Uh, so what is a dispensation? Now, there are varying models out there for dispensationalism. Uh, I see I'm not a hardline dispensationalist, but I see dispensationalism as being very helpful in understanding. Uh, what it does is it re- refers in the New Testament to God's plan for bringing salvation to mankind within the course of history. So dispensations, it's a chunk of time. It refers to periods of time where God administers the affairs of man through a certain way or method. So when you think Old Testament, when I, if I say Old Testament, what do you think? What was, what's the first word? One word comes to mind. Law. Yeah. I saw a couple of you say that. All right. That's the dispensation of law. When I say New Testament, what comes to mind? Grace. Yes. The dispensation of grace. So that's what a dispensation is now if i wanted to and we're not going to go there there's no time this morning there uh, classic dispensationalism has time marked out and there are seven uh dispensations throughout history it begins with innocence and, and and then conscience and then it goes on through uh and we're just not going to go there but dispensationalism essentially uh well jesus he or john the apostle in Uh, John chapter one says, for the law was given through Moses, dispensation of law, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the dispensation of grace. That's really the major dividing point here is God's plan of salvation being carried out. That's why we talk about BC and AD. I mean, that's the big dividing line for humanity. I mean, because the focal point in history is the cross and whether and we live in a godless society that doesn't look at now they want to say bce and all of that but truly it was before christ and after death and and that was how it was measured so when he talks about uh the dispensation of the fullness of times that he might gather together uh in one all things in christ what he's talking about is jesus what he's talking about is the work of the son is the fullness of times being gathered that God knew that in his foreknowledge that at that time he was going to carry out that plan and redeem man. That's the fullness of times that he's referring to here. Uh, Some people say, well, it talks about the end of times and all. No, that's, I, I don't think that that fits the context. I mean, you could, you could take an application from that, but it doesn't exactly fit the context. So God's plan of salvation wasn't understood during old Testament times. Uh, And this was, remember this was his plan before the foundation of the world, before the world was before anything came about. So when you look at the whole span of time, the dispensation of the fullness of times is then, and it goes into now because the church age began at the cross and flows until the end of the age uh when uh, he he gathers all things. Uh, so uh, loosely stated, I'm not a hyper dispensationalist, but I think that dispensations are helpful in understanding the times, the periods of time. The point is God determines the times and the dispensations, not man. Uh, man likes to break things down and that's fine. So uh in Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. There's that word again, to redeem those who were under the law, that he, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Very similar to what he's saying here in Ephesians. So the full, fullness of time, of what time? His time. In his design, for humanity. That's when he would consummate things. Uh, We live in the last days. I want to make a distinction here. Uh, I hear people say sometimes, well, we're living in the end times. No, we're not. (laughs) We are living in the last days. The last days ends with the end times. When you get into the whole thing where he kicks into high gear with the the, the rapture of the church and then going on into the tribulation, all that, that's end times. We're not there yet. I think we're right up against it. Because we are in the last days. But end times will start at that point. Uh, the point is is that when he talks about dispensation of time, it's the consummation of the ages when Jesus came. Hebrews 9.26 says this, Now, once at the end of, or literally the consummation of, the ages, the word there is aeon, he had, and we'll talk about that in a sec, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, what the Bible is telling us, again, the Bible validates itself. What Paul is saying here, that uh, talking about the, the consummation, the, the dispensation here, he's talking about that consummation being the work of Christ, the work of the Son. In Hebrews 1, it says that God in times past spoke to the fathers and the prophets through many portions in many ways. But in His last days, He's has spoken to us in His Son, through whom he created the worlds. The world, the word worlds there is not cosmos, which is geographical, you know, dirt. The, the, the world, the physical world. But it's the same word as we see here. It's called aeon. And what it means is ages. Through whom he created the ages. Through whom he com- he created the dispensations of time. So, uh, what is being said here is talking about the consummation of the ages that he appeared to put away sin through his own sacrifice. That's how he redeemed us. That's how he paid the ransom. Verse 11, in him again uh, says, uh, also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not we have worked uh, for or somehow earned an inheritance. It's not we deserve an inheritance. He says we have obtained it. We have laid hold of our inheritance. all right? He's talking about predestiny again here. How have we laid hold of it? by faith. And, and, and what that, that faith is it's that word that comes it's not just vain faith. We've talked about vain faith versus real faith. It's faith that shapes that changes a life. It's faith that says, I believe it. And it's the the Greek... I'm not going to go into that. But it essentially saying that if you believe, there's a difference if you give mental assent to something or if I said, look, there's a crack in the roof and the ceiling is going to collapse. That's going to motivate you and I to action. We're not going to keep sitting here. And that's the kind of faith he's talking about. It's very similar to what James says. Show me your faith and I'll show you my works. So this... Uh, inheritance that we have access to is obtained by faith. We lay hold of it. And God knew all along what we would do and how we would choose. That's being predestined. Uh, again, looking at the arch on one side, whosoever will come on the, you walk through it and you look back at it and it says predestined from the foundations of the earth. There's a mystery in that, but that's truly how it works from God's economy. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is heir of all things. In Romans 8, tells us that we are joint heirs with him. Speaking of the inheritance, speaking in terms, in first century terms, if you had an inheritance, you were getting your father's stuff. Go back to Luke chapter 15. Look at the the parable, the the prodigal son, the parable of lost things. Uh, The son is saying, give me what you owe me. And not in the sense of God is in debt to us, but that he shares freely the inheritance that his son is entitled to with us because we are joint heirs. That's part of what we get. You let that sink in. You can think about nothing else for the next week. And you think about the inheritance that you have, that I have in Christ. It's absolutely amazing. The point is God determined he willed that we would have this incredible inheritance in advance. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. There's that term again, to the praise of his glory. In other words, he's doing this. Yeah, we're we're beneficiaries, but he's doing it for his own glory. God does things to glorify himself to the praise of his glory is significant because it's all about him. He is the one that initiates the work, He is the one that con- that completes the work. He is the one that wills it, the Son accomplishes it, the Spirit applies it. It's to the praise of his glory. That's why this term is used three times in this first 14 verses uh, here in Ephesians. So Paul was a Jew. Uh, he says that we who first trusted in Christ, uh, Paul was a Jew. Uh, and the church began with Jews. God added daily to the church, and but the Jews were the first to respond. We were the first to believe. Uh, yet in chapter 2, we're going to read, again, there's no difference between Jew and Greek. But in Romans 1, we see this. For he Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So when he's saying to the praise of his glory, it's, he's saying there's no boasting. It's by the will of the father carried out through the work of the son and applied by the Holy spirit of promise to our lives. That's how come we get to this point in verse 13 and 14 of the witness of the Holy spirit. Verse 13 in him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy spirit of promise. Paul's reminding the Ephesians first of their salvation but also of the security they have because they belong to the Lord. He wants them to be secure in him. Jesus in John chapter 17 said, Father, as he's praying there before he went to the cross, of those that you've given me, I've not lost one. You can be secure in your father's hands. Paul proclaimed the word of truth, the gospel to them. Uh, They had responded to it and were saved. In Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth uh, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a very definite promise to us, to anyone who chooses to trust Christ. It's always by his spirit and through his word. There's a progression here. He says, having heard the gospel, they trusted Christ for their sins, having believed they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, 2000 years ago, if you looked at a Roman seal, what they did was that uh, the person who was in power had a signet ring and they would melt wax. You see it sometimes on decorative envelopes that you can still buy these things. We were cleaning out uh, a deal not long ago and we found a bunch of wax that people would use for seals. And and if you had a legal document or uh, if you had an important letter or a contract or whatever back in the first century, they would melt the wax onto the scroll and then roll their signet ring across the wax to make an impression so you would know for sure that that was signed, sealed, and delivered by the person who was responsible for it. All right? So what it was a symbol of was Authenticity. It's not a fake. Only one person had that ring. It was a mark of ownership. It was, a, it was a mark of security and protection. And it spoke of a finished transaction. It's the same thing with us. When I first believed, my life was sealed to God by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, that I'm marked out as God's divine possession. That I belong to him now. My life belongs to him. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. In being sealed to the Lord, I am secure and I am protected. I am His. I belong to Him. And part of a finished transaction, Uh, the Holy Spirit will abide with a believer forever. So similar things. When He's saying that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, that means you have not only been set apart, that He has put His seal upon you, it's a finished transaction that you belong to Him, and that's not going to change. You want to talk about being eternally secure? Yeah, we talked about apostasy when we were in Hebrews, and we talked about that whole thing. And I'm not, I'm not going to go down that road. We're out of time. But the point is, is that if you belong to Him, you can have confidence. Oh, but Pastor, I blew it last week. Well, so you blew it. Did you ask God to forgive you? Did you get right with Him? Oh, well, Pastor, I just, you know, I haven't been to church in a month. Well, that's fine. You don't, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together with the saints. It's not going to Change your salvation. Oh, but pastor this. Oh, but, you know, honey, that. uh, Yeah, you know what? We're all in process. We're all broken in ways. It is utterly by his grace. Don't move away from that. It is by the grace of God alone, period. And he lavishes us with his grace. And then he seals us with the Holy Spirit he talks about the Holy Spirit of promise. It's a reminder of God's uncompromising faithfulness to all who believe, who have come to trust, who have let the weight of their life down on Jesus. Verse 14, we're going to finish with this verse, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on the fullness of God's blessings. Do we get Every one of God's blessings, the minute we come to Christ, when we give our hearts to him, when when he comes in and takes up residence inside, no. But the Holy Spirit is a down payment on that. He is the pledge. Interesting, in the Greek, in the original, the Koine Greek, the word here uh, for that is aberon, or arabon, I'm sorry. Uh, And what it means is a pledge or a guarantee or an earnest So it's like, if you go to purchase a home, you'd make an earnest money agreement. It's basically saying, this is a, this is a a, a chunk. That's an advance. It's a payment and it's guaranteeing the rest. And what Paul is saying to the people here is the Holy spirit is a down payment essentially on heaven, but he's a down payment on the future faithfulness of God. Now Interesting. I found something. That this I thought this was really cool. In modern Greek, uh, the word is evolved. Some it's not Erebon, it's arabona. And if I were a single guy and I was in Greece and I went and I fell in love with some woman and, and not some woman, but the woman. Yeah. But uh, go with me on this. So if I was. Like, totally serious about her and I'm ready to, to, you know, spring the question and I ask her to marry me. I give her an Arabona. Because that word in modern Greek is the word for engagement ring. And, And it's evolved from this, from back in the first century. And essentially, that's what the Holy Spirit is, is He's a seal or a pledge. He is God's engagement ring for His bride. And and that we, as the church, as his bride, can live with expectancy that he is going to redeem the purchased possession, that he has already got our life in his hand, that we are going through this life. We go through a lot of stuff. And yet, as we go through, as we live, the Holy Spirit is there. The witness of the Holy Spirit is there to comfort us, to empower us for service, to give us understanding of God's word, to give us to eliminate our thinking on life itself and the way that we decide and choose things, the, the things that influence the things we say, the things we think, the things we do. All of that is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, without which we would be in deep trouble. So praise God that we have the down payment That we have, if you're a believer this morning and you have the Holy Spirit, he's the one that's giving you understanding as to the fact that God's word makes sense, that you can put it on and wear it, that it applies to our lives. That's great news. Paul, writing in his love for this church, is writing these things. They had threats coming from outside. They had threats coming from inside. This is several years after he told them that when he was there at Miletus with the Ephesian elders. And he wants to strengthen this church because he wants them to be sure of what they have in Christ. How do you stand against the threats, inside or out? You know where you stand. You know what you have in Christ. And that, folks, is what God's promises to us today. As we stand in Christ, we know what we have in him. We know we know the error because we live in the truth. We don't go around trying to snoop it out. And yet we know that that when something comes along or someone uh, introduces some weird heresy, we can identify it because God loves us the same way that Paul had the love of God for this church. God loves us and he wants us to be living in truth, to be living in the vibrancy of the work, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, for this, uh, race through Ephesians 1 and, and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, as we've been discussing, that you would take these truths.